It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Everyone knows that Stephen Breyer has been an exemplary justice. Fair to the parties before him, courteous to his colleagues, careful in his reasoning. He's written landmark opinions on topics ranging from reproductive rights to health care to voting rights to patent law to laws protecting our environment and the laws that protect our religious practices. Justice Stephen Breyer will step down from the Supreme Court after 28 years on the bench. Known as a scholar, a pragmatist, a consensus builder, and an optimist with a professorial air, Breyer displayed those qualities in his remarks at the White House on Thursday. The justice said that in his talks with students, he reminds them that our system of government should still be considered an experiment. It's that next generation and the one after that. My grandchildren and their children, they'll determine whether the experiment still works and, of course, I am an optimist, and I'm pretty sure it will. Does it surprise you that that's the thought that comes into my mind today? My guest to discuss Justice Breyer's legacy is constitutional law scholar Stephen Vladek, a professor at the University of Texas Law School. Justice Breyer has been adamant in the past that justices are not political. Once they take their oath, they, quote, are loyal to the rule of law, not to the political party that helps secure their appointment. But his retirement now, before the end of the term, giving the Democratic president plenty of time to get another justice confirmed before possible change in power in the Senate, is it Breyer's acknowledgement that politics and the court are intertwined. Gene, I think the question is whether you can somehow walk a tightrope between acknowledging that I think everyone has to, that the confirmation process is political, that political actors in the form of the president and the Senate are making political decisions about who to nominate, about timing, while still believing that once the process is over, once the justice is confirmed and takes the oath and joins the bench, that what they're doing is somehow divorced from politics. And, you know, I think Justice Breyer may be the last of his kind in trying to argue forcefully that, yes, that's a line that can be preserved, that we can have a political, if not partisan, confirmation process and still be judges doing, you know, judicial power as opposed to political power. Once we don our robes, you know, I think the question is how many folks still believe that. 
there are a lot of textualists on the court now. Breyer was more of a pragmatist. Tell us about his approach to the Constitution. Justice Breyer, and I'm sure part of this was a reflection of his experience, first as a longtime Senate staffer, as an administrative law guru, as a professor, and then, June, as you know, as a lower court judge, he really thought that when it comes to the structure of government, the best way to think about how the branches relate to each other is, you know, a more functionalist approach where the branches are not hermetically sealed from each other, where there's power sharing, where the checks and balances are both formal and informal. And the informal part is what often gets missed in contemporary discourse. But Breyer knew of what he spoke. He was part of it when he was working for the Judiciary Committee, when he was involved in the Administrative Conference of the United States. And so I think his approach to judge him was the notion that it is not forbidden, it is not a sin to look at the Constitution, to look at statutes, to look at circumstances where judges are allowed to exercise a modicum of independent judgment and ask what actually makes the most sense, what would be the most administrable, what would be the most efficient. And that kind of functionalist pragmatism used to be a lot more common on the court. And I think it's, you know, again, another respect in which Breyer's retirement may well be the end of an era. Justice Breyer was on the bench nearly three decades, yet he wasn't as well known to the general public as other justices. I don't think folks think about Justice Breyer the same way that maybe they think about like Justice Sotomayor or Justice Ginsburg, because he wasn't as visible in cases affecting civil rights, for example. But for all of his warts, for all of his flaws, not besides the fact it was Justice Breyer who wrote what until recently was probably the most important contemporary abortion decision in favor of women's right to choose in the whole women's health case in 2016. It was Justice Breyer who was often writing the lead decisions in affirmative action cases. It was Justice Breyer who was supporting at least a large chunk of the court's jurisprudence that, you know, is now in dissent. And so I think what complicates his legacy, June, is not him. I think we knew who he was in 1994 when President Clinton nominated him. It's how much the court moved around him. It's how different a court he left than the court that he joined and how he looks through that lens as opposed to the lens that we thought we'd be assessing him through 28 years ago. Would you describe him as more of a moderate than a liberal? These terms are so subjective. I certainly think that for the duration of his tenure on the court, he was probably the most centrist of the justices typically identified as liberal, that of the Democratic appointees, and even when Justices Stevens and Souter were still on the court, that Breyer was probably the one closest to the center. And you know, we have empirical evidence of that. There were high-profile cases where it was Breyer who provided the key fifth vote in favor of what we might think of as a more conservative position. The Hamdi case in 2004, it was Breyer who provided the fifth vote for the proposition that even American citizens could be detained as enemy combatants. It was Justice Breyer in a series of cases in the early 2010s who actually traded places with Justice Kennedy in some fairly significant questions about the right to sue the government to enforce federal claims against state officers. And so I don't think there's any question that he was certainly the most moderate of the justices we typically use the L word for. If the question is whether that made him a moderate in the abstract, and I think folks are just going to disagree about that. Coming up, I'll continue this conversation with Professor Stephen Vladek, how the court will change. To me, what the judge was saying is, wait a minute. Suppose what the guy had said at the company was Ishkabibble. Yes, Ishkabibble, tomato children, mob monopoly, robocall-loving grandmas, green-eyed turkeys. These are just some of the zany, often bizarre hypotheticals Justice Stephen Breyer posed to lawyers in his three decades on the bench. Imagine you made a hairbrush in the shape of a grape. 
Imagine King Tut sitting in front of the pyramid where all his gold is stored. Purple cellophane on the sympathometer signals the presence of a hot dog stand. But prevent him from going to a Lithuanian movie? Now, why does that sound so odd? And Breyer once had a partner in his wacky hypotheticals in the late Justice Antonin Scalia. It's like a rabbit duck, you know, is it a rabbit or is it a duck? It's a jackal, maybe. I've never heard of a rabbit <laughs> Now, it turns out that the only people who use kerosene, besides railroads, are ice cream wagons. What's an ice cream wagon, anyway? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't understand Justice Breyer's question, where he said the... The amiable bank robber says, would you please step, say, would you please step over? Yeah, I'm walking to hey, bank Step over there, I'll blow your head off, is what he says. My example was meant to encompass a polite and armed bank robber. <laughs> I've been talking to Professor Stephen Vladek of the University of Texas Law School. Steve, I'm going to miss Justice Breyer in the oral arguments. He livened up oral arguments by presenting <laughs> some crazy hypotheticals. And you've argued at the court. Are those difficult to answer? <laughs> difficult to understand yeah, yeah, it's for funny. me. It's funny. You, you say that he livened up the court. I would say that, he, you know, he terrified generations <laughs> kids like me. You know, I mean, Justice Breyer, he has this sort of aloof affect that I think folks may not fully appreciate. Is sometimes not entirely, how do I say, inherent. That I think, you know, to some degree, he's having fun, at least in some of these cases, with the very fact that, you know, we're struggling over these questions. When he starts talking about James Oglethorpe's third cousin, I think was a hypothetical <laughs> that came up in a case a couple terms ago. You know, I don't think it's like a class clown thing. I think it's that he's just thinking out loud and he's puzzling through these cases, you know, the way that he approaches these cases, which is with a very pragmatic bent, informed by his very erudite background. I think arguments will be different after Justice Breyer. I'm not sure how many of us will miss the, you know, three-page long question. I got in trouble once because he asked me a long, multi-part question, and I sort of, I, I probably took a little bit of liberty, but I said, you know, if I may, Justice Breyer, I'd like to answer that in three parts. And he said, it was one question. <laughs> it, was, it was his style, too, and I think it was a style that was in some respects cute. And I think we'll be probably missed if it doesn't necessarily affect things beyond just how we prepare for arguments. You always hear that Justice Breyer was a consensus builder. President Biden even mentioned it. How did he approach the internal dealings with other justices on cases? From what we know, June, and of course, there's a lot we still don't. Justice Breyer was very often one who would try to form coalitions behind the scenes. We know from reporting, for example, by Joan Biskupic and Jan Crawford Greenberg that Breyer helped to forge a compromise in the 2012 Affordable Care Act decision, where he and Justice Kagan worked together with Chief Justice Roberts to come up with sort of a series of decisions they could all live with. We know that he worked in various circumstances with Justice Kennedy before she retired with Justice O'Connor to forge consensus. And so I think this, again, goes to how much the court moved around him, that by 2018, when Justice Kavanaugh replaced Justice Breyer, I don't know who was left for him to work with. I mean, I'm not sure that he thought that he still had folks on the right with whom he could forge consensus, at least in any of the high-profile cases where those kinds of ideological differences tend to manifest. So he was, I think, for much of his career, actively involved in trying to sort of tend the center of the court. And if one of the real legacies of his resignation and his retirement, and I think one of the real sort of darker linings of all of this, is how much that center just no longer exists. As you mentioned, he taught administrative law before being appointed to the First Circuit. Were there issues that he was passionate about during his long tenure on the court? 
Well, I think Justice Breyer was very passionate um, in ways that perhaps, you know, not everyone would be about administrative law, about the relationship between Congress and the executive branch, about sort of the public responsibility of the court to maintain and facilitate that relationship as opposed to obstructing it. But, you know, I don't think we associate him quite the same way with any one particular line of issues or line of cases that, for example, we think about Justice Ginsburg or even perhaps Justice Sotomayor. And I think part of that's, again, because where he was most effective was usually out of the limelight. It was usually behind the scenes where it wasn't that he was necessarily taking out some very visible public position, but where he was really trying to help the court as an institution move along. And I think that's why, as we hear from the other justices about his forthcoming retirement, I suspect we're going to hear a lot about that and about how much they enjoyed having him around and how much he aided them in their own sort of approach to their jobs. So that's why I think this is going to be such an interesting process over the coming weeks and months, because Justice Breyer, whatever you might think about him, in no respects was he ever a lightning rod. And I think that's part of why this confirmation process is such an interesting departure from the last couple of confirmations that we've been through. Explain how so how it will be different, because it's been incredibly contentious. The confirmation process has become ugly in certain respects. Yeah, I mean, I think we, everyone has short memories. But if we hearken back, you know, 12 years, 13 years, when Justice Sotomayor was nominated to replace Justice Souter, you know, yeah, there was some of the same ugliness about Justice Sotomayor and her background. But compared to the confirmations that would follow it, it was actually pretty smooth sailing. And I think part of that was because, as with Justice Breyer, Everyone understood that that particular confirmation was not going to shift to the center of gravity on the court, that it was not going to radically change the direction of the court, and that the justice that Justice Sotomayor was replacing in Justice Souter was a very significant member of the court, but he wasn't necessarily out on a, a limb all by himself, where his departure was going to open up some gaping hole in the court's jurisprudence. And that's very much what this feels like as well, where whoever President Biden nominates, you know, I think will almost certainly sort of be to the left of Justice Breyer. But of course, that's not going to move the court because Justice Breyer is no longer anywhere close to the court's center of gravity. And I think that's part of why, at least from where I'm sitting, I don't think this is going to be as contentious a process as when Justice Kavanaugh was nominated to succeed Justice Kennedy or when Justice Barrett was nominated to succeed Justice Ginsburg, because the stakes, June, are just so very different. So how would you describe his legacy on the court? <sighs> um, you know, I think much much the same way that I thought of, like, Justice Stevens' legacy when Justice Stevens stepped down in 2010. That, you know, Justice Stevens famously was appointed by President Ford, was a Republican, a lifelong Republican, um, who by the end of his career was one of the more solidly, reliably liberal votes on the court. And, you know, Stevens, when he was asked in 2010, he said, I didn't move so much as the court moved around. Um, and I think, you know, there was not um, there, there was a, some play in that. I think, you know, Justice Stevens might have been a little bit exaggerated, but he wasn't totally exaggerated. And I really think that, like, when we look at Justice Breyer's legacy, that's going to be a big part of the story. Like, what might have been, um, you know, if um, Hillary Clinton wins the 2016 election? And we have a Democratic majority on the court for the first time since 1969. Justice Breyer would have been an enormously important part of that story. Um, right? He and Justice Ginsburg would have been the senior liberals on the court um, and therefore usually in control of the majority in divisive cases. So, you know, I think his legacy is going to be defined, at least in part, by what could have been. I think his legacy will be defined by, you know, how much he sort of 
lived in the center while there was still a center to live in alongside Justice Kennedy, Justice O'Connor. And I think his legacy would be defined by sort of an age gone by where having a pragmatic judge on the court who thought that part of the job was to build consensus across the perceived aisle was actually a feature and not a bug. You're going to have Breyer, who's been on the court for almost 30 years, being replaced by someone new and a black woman. How does that change the dynamic on the court and among the liberals on the court? Three women now. The most significant thing it does is it really, I think, elevates Justice Sotomayor that much further. I mean, she now becomes not just perhaps the rhetorical leader of the liberal wing, but the senior member of the liberal wing. So when it comes to parceling out dissent, for example, in the high-profile cases, you know, that will fall to her as opposed to Justice Breyer. But I also think, too, that the other way it's going to change the dynamics is, you know, I think it is going to reflect yet a further generational change. One has to think that President Biden is going to appoint someone who is at the oldest in their early 50s. And so if that person serves for as long as Justice Breyer serves, I mean, the court is going to change again while they're on the court. So I think the internal dynamics will be harder for us to see. I think they will be most heavily felt among the three Democratic appointees and how they allocate their responsibility. Is there a chance, June, that the justice who replaces Justice Breyer might find her own mechanisms, her own ways of building consensus with some of her colleagues on the other side? Is a a relationship between the new justice and Justice Gorsuch, for example, on criminal cases a possibility? We'll have to see. But again, I mean, I think what really makes this whole process feel so different from the last couple times we've been here is that these differences in the short term are going to just pale in comparison to the short-term differences we saw between Kennedy and Kavanaugh and Ginsburg and Barrett. Of the list of replacements, does one stand out? Of the list of replacements, does one stand out? I don't know about one, June. I think there are two. From where I'm sitting, Katanji Brown-Jackson and Leandra Kruger are such compelling candidates in different ways. And slow though I am to bet on any particular candidate in this race, I would be very surprised if it wasn't one of those two. They're both fantastically qualified. They're both very smart. They're both highly regarded. June, they have different backgrounds. They have different experiences. Katanji Brown-Jackson was a district judge before she was an appellate judge. She has trial experience. Leonda Kruger, before she was a California Supreme Court justice, was a government lawyer. She worked in the executive branch for the Office of Legal Counsel. So I think there are tantalizing opportunities with both of them. And I think it's going to be a good problem for President Biden to have in trying to pick between them and the other names that are being bandied about. Thanks so much, Steve. I always appreciate your insights. That's Professor Stephen Vladek of the University of Texas Law School. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. 
Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The Supreme Court is passing on Oklahoma's aggressive attempt to topple the 2020 precedent on American Indian reservations and criminal justice established in the landmark case of McGirt v. Oklahoma by a vote of 5-4. to four. The justices will not review the precedent established in McGirt, but will look at how the ruling applies to state prosecutions of non-Indians. It will be one of the last argued cases of the term. Both Indian tribes and the state of Oklahoma applauded the court's order on Friday. Joining me is Bloomberg Law reporter Jordan Rubin. For those who don't remember McGirt, tell us what that landmark decision of McGirt v. Oklahoma stands for. So McGirt v. Oklahoma stands for the proposition that the Muskogee Creek Reservation, which is the reservation at issue in that case, had never been disbanded by Congress. That reservation still stands. It still exists. And by implication, so do several other reservations in the eastern half of Oklahoma. And that arose in a criminal case by a defendant who was challenging his conviction. He was Native American. He said the state of Oklahoma didn't have jurisdiction to charge him for a crime that took place on the reservation. And so to answer the question, the justices had to take a look at whether that reservation still, in fact, existed, which made the court go back and look at treaties and interpret those. And so the court said that the reservations do still, in fact, exist. And so that's what wound up having this transformative effect on criminal justice and potentially some other areas of the law in Oklahoma. Remind us about the reaction to the ruling from the state of Oklahoma and the Indian tribes in Oklahoma. Sure. So from the state's perspective, and this was true heading into the decision, the state was warning that there would be chaos breaking out if the state didn't have jurisdiction to prosecute certain crimes. And that jurisdiction would then fall to tribes and the federal government, which the state said wasn't equipped at all to handle those things. That's what the state was saying ahead of the argument. And so then after the state lost the decision, it essentially reiterated those same arguments, saying, telling the court, hey, all these things that we warned you about that were going to happen, those, in fact, did happen, and now we want you to fix it by reversing the decision. The tribes, though, say that that's not true, that that narrative of chaos is not what's playing out in Oklahoma, and that to the extent there is this chaos, 
it's because of the state challenging the McGirt decision itself and not cooperating. So there's a circular effect to all of this, but the state and the tribes really are at totally opposite ends of the spectrum. And when I say the state and the tribes, I'm talking about the governor, Stitt, who's been challenging this, there has been cooperation between the tribes and different state officials on the lower end, but at the higher end of it from the governor's office and the tribes, it's really been a serious battle there. So the state of Oklahoma asked the Supreme Court to reverse a decision it just handed down in 2020 that that set a precedent for American Indian reservations. That's right. And so it's a pretty bold request. We hadn't really seen anything quite like this. It's obviously not unprecedented for the court to overturn its precedent, but this request was unusual for how quickly it was being made and being made obviously because of a change in composition on the court with Justice Ginsburg having been in the 5-4 majority against the state and then her dying and being replaced by Amy Coney Barrett. Were there more than 30 petitions to the court? There were, and they were all raising this same issue. And so the state was raising this question of attempting to try and overturn the decision in, as you said, over 30 petitions to the court, most of which were denied today on Monday, January 24th, denied in terms of the question of whether to overturn the precedent. But the court did grant review on Friday of a related question that doesn't involve straight up overturning the decision. So explain what the court says it will review. So the court is going to review the question of how McGirt applies to non-Indians, the state's power over prosecuting non-Indians. McGirt involved an Indian defendant, but in the state's eyes, that left open the question of whether a state can prosecute non-Indians who commit crimes against Indians in Indian country, which is the legal term referred to for the reservation. And so it's essentially still a question about state power and state authority, which was what's happening against the backdrop of the broader McGirt issue, but now in a narrower way, not taking on this broader question of whether to straight up overturn the decision that the court just issued. So, Jordan, is there any way the justices could cut back on the part of the ruling they say they're not reviewing? They certainly could, but I think that no matter what the court winds up doing, whether it's seen as cutting back or expanding, is going to depend on from what vantage point you're viewing the case to begin with, because certainly from the tribe's perspective, that could be seen as cutting back on McGirt. From the state's perspective, not applying the state's authority to non-Indians would be seen as an impermissible expansion of McGirt. So we see this in other cases, too, where whether you're talking about expanding or narrowing can depend on where you're sitting, where you're viewing this from. But certainly the court can wind up in some ways narrowing the effect of the McGirt decision. And both sides applauded the Supreme Court's order to take this? Right. So... When Oklahoma was petitioning the court, asking the court to overturn the McGirt decision, you had tribes affected by the ruling filing amicus briefs telling the court not to reverse this decision, which the tribes had really hailed as a important landmark ruling. And so then, obviously, when the court denied review of that broader question, the tribes applauded that. And I thought it was interesting that 
in his statement on the court granting review of just an hour question, Governor Stitt also applauded the ruling, the decision to take on this narrower question as well without really acknowledging the fact that the state had lost its attempt to take on the broader issue. It takes four votes to grant review of a case. And does it seem as if it wasn't Gorsuch and the three liberals who were in the majority in McGirt who would have authorized this? It seems like it's the conservatives. Right. Those might have been the least likely, I would say, out of those four who are left from the majority decision. Gorsuch, even though he authored McGirt, could potentially have still been the most likely out of those four to have granted review of this question, because in some ways it is an issue that doesn't directly implicate the broader interests of McGirt, although some people think that it might. But it's certainly possible that more than four justices were willing to take on this issue. But as you said, the fact that the court keeps this sort of vote secret, we just don't know, at least for now. And the only difference in the composition of the court is that Amy Coney Barrett has replaced Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg? That's right. And not in their legal filings, but state officials at the same time that they were attempting to reverse the decision made public comments directly saying that, that they hoped that the change in composition of the court would help the court to change course in the state's favor. So that wasn't the direct legal argument that the state's lawyers were making, but that was obviously the effect of what they were saying. And on top of that, the governor directly made that statement in at least one interview that I came across. So I remember when we talked about this earlier, when Oklahoma was asking the Supreme Court to overturn it, it seemed like it would be, you know, odd for the court to grant review so soon afterwards. But did this come as a surprise that the court granted this limited review? Not to me, because before the state injected this attempt after Justice Ginsburg died to overturn McGirt, this was an issue that the state was pushing for even before then. And so at that point, I thought that there was going to be a decent chance that the state was going to take on this issue of the state's jurisdiction after McGirt. Once they also requested to straight up overturn McGirt, I would have been very surprised if the court had even granted review of that question. But as to the question the court did grant review on, I wouldn't say that that's too surprising. So the claims that Oklahoma has made, you know, sort of the chaos in Oklahoma after the decision, has any of that been shown to be true or is that just exaggeration? So I think it's probably both, that there are some things that are true and there are some things that are being exaggerated. When you, whenever you have a decision that's affecting criminal defendants' rights, there's no doubt there are always going to be cases that either wind up getting prosecuted differently or don't wind up getting prosecuted at all. That's a fact of life. That's what happens when the court applies the law sometimes. Now, I don't think that it's the case that there is this chaos to the extent that the state is painting. It's certainly not from talking to people who are working with the tribes on the ground there and reporting that I've done. But that's certainly not to say that there haven't been real effects from McGirt. I think everybody agrees about that. It's more of just a question of what does the law say? And in McGirt, it said that the state doesn't have this jurisdiction. And now there's the question of whether the state has this narrower form of jurisdiction. And so 
these questions about the effect of the ruling are really almost besides the point. Obviously, they're super important on the ground. But as to the specific legal question, these are questions about statutory interpretation and treaties. It's just that these other issues are getting brought up in the background and really trying to be used to press the justice to rule a certain way. And um, when will this be heard? Will it be heard this term or next term? It will be heard this term. And that's actually a more interesting question than usual (laughs) about when a case is going to be heard, because it looks like this is going to be the last case that kind of squeaked in right at the last minute to be heard this term, because this past Friday was sort of the unofficial last day that the court could have granted a new case to be heard this term. And usually when a court is granting review of a case, it won't say exactly when it's going to be heard. But to put aside any doubt, in the court's order, it said this case is going to be argued in the last session in April and put the case even on a somewhat expedited briefing schedule. And so we know that the case is going to be heard this term, according to the court, and it might well be the last case granted to be heard this term. Thanks so much, Jordan, as always. That's Bloomberg Law reporter Jordan Rubin. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.